There's a song that I was listening to this week. I think it's Matthew West does it. Truth be told. I'm fine, yes, I'm fine, yes, I'm fine, yes, I'm fine. No, I'm not. Uh, that's exactly the way it is. I'm fine, yes, I'm fine, yes, I'm fine. No, I'm not. You know, it just seems like every moment you can float in and out. And I, listen, I'm not any different than you. You've all faced loss. You know, you go to bed at 11 o'clock at night, can't sleep. Wake a, you finally wake up at 3 in the morning and you're wide awake going, wow, what do I do now? And then somebody texts you at 3 in the morning because guess what? They're doing the exact same thing you're doing. You're sitting there going, wow, what do we do and how do we process all of that? So that's kind of where we're at. Um, James 4, I sent this out in the text, says this. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will do this and we will do that. You know, I don't know what you do and how you respond when things like this happen in your life, you know, what you do. For me, I'm, first thing I do is I go to the Bible. I'm like, okay, where in the table of contents is this? do I see this? Or, or, or where do I go a chapter? What chapter? Or I'm going to go all the way to the back, and I'm going to find this place where this circumstance, this situation applies to my life. And I, I want to know, and I want to, then I want to read the Scripture, and I want to be able to say, well, what, what's going on here? And one of the, the, the texts that just continues to ring in my life this past week is Psalm 90. And I've read it a couple of times, and I read it in the middle of the night one night. And I just want to read it. We're going to get to our text, but let me just read Psalm 90. It's interesting. It's a prayer of, of Moses. It's a psalm of Moses. It's a prayer of Moses, the only one that he wrote. Listen uh, to what it says. It says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, and you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that's gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. Though in the morning it brings forth new, by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is maybe 70 years or 80 if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For your wrath is as great as your fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Relent, O Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. That way we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So that's the psalm that I've gone to. That's the psalm that's resonated within my heart. Lord, teach me to number my days because I want to have a heart of wisdom. I don't know what the future holds. So I originally had planned to fly out to Seattle in March 5th. It's something we'd planned about a month ago to be with my dad, speak at the church that he's attend. So what we're going to do is we're going to gather together on that Saturday, March 5th, and we're going to have a celebration of my brother's life. You know, some of you be asking, well, do we know how we pass away? No, I don't. I really, we have no idea what happened. They're going to do a path of... Uh, uh, a test to see, check his blood, all that kind of stuff, and then they'll do an autopsy on Wednesday, but we probably won't know for two or three months. So there's a lot of unknowns right now, 
But we know this, that we can gather together and uh, celebrate his life. So that's what we're going to do uh, on March 5th. So I'm going to go out there the 3rd through the 8th and be with my family. So that's the update on me. So I appreciate all that you've done. Appreciate your prayers. Thank you for your thoughts. Thank you for texting me and sending emails and let me know. It means a lot that we can do that. And we can do that what, as, a, as a body of Christ, as a family of God. We, we need each other. And so I'm just grateful for that. So we're currently in a series in the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to invite you to turn, if you want to, Mark chapter 1. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of different themes that I thought of, a lot of different series titles that I come for this. It could have been Mark, follow Jesus, because he talks about this, or, or how to, to be a disciple of Jesus, or how to follow Jesus. I mean, there could have been a, a bunch of different themes that we could have gone to, maybe series titles. But I've kind of landed on this one, his story, the story of Jesus, and our story. In other words, what needs to happen is the story of Jesus needs to converge with my story and how we're supposed to live in our lives. We can't just keep Jesus at a distance. The the call of the gospel of of Mark is for us to follow Jesus. And so our life needs to emulate him. Our our life needs to follow him. And so these these two stories converge. And we we saw that at the beginning in in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark talks about the beginning of the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's kind of like the the title, if you will, the bold statement of, of who Jesus is. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. And, and last week, we, we had these, these voices. You know, I, I wanted to, to remind us that we're hearing voices. The, the voice of Scripture in the Old Testament, what, what John the Baptist does, John the Baptist, the forerunner, he comes along the scene and he, he begins to, to, to fulfill the prophecies from Isaiah about, about being the messenger. And, and he comes along the scene and he, his voice is a, is a preaching voice, if you will. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He's, he's calling people to repentance, if you will. And, and the last voice is, is John's voice about who Jesus is. His voice specifically says, he's one coming after me, and he's more powerful than I. And one day he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. John, approximately 30 years of age, comes along the scene, this, this wild guy dressed all very, very differently. He comes along the scene, and, he, and he's having this powerful ministry along the Jordan Road, this powerful ministry where people are traveling from, from tens, tens of miles from, from Jerusalem all the way to come to hear this message of repentance. And they're being baptized, they're being immersed in the Jordan River because of this message of repentance. And all of a sudden we have, in verse 9, the main character comes to the scene. The main actor, if you will. The, the main person that the story is all about. Jesus enters this picture and we have the baptism of Jesus. And that's what I want to look at this morning. I'm going to look at from Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. I want to look at the baptism of Jesus. We're going to put it on the screen here. Hear the word of the Lord. Notice what Mark writes after this transition. He says this. He says, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized by John in Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn up and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. I am well pleased. Let me take just a minute, if you will, to read or to, uh, to pray and invite God's presence with us this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Father, I pray for my father, who I know will read that passage from James to his own church this morning. Father, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be on you because of who you are and what you've done for us. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that he radically alters and changes our lives. Lord, the way that we think about life, the way that we think about death, and the way that we think about how to live. Father, I thank you for the power of your word to speak to us and to encourage us. And Father, I ask that you would speak to us this morning through your spirit and all God's people said, amen.
So what I want to do this morning is I kind of want to look at this and, and, and answer two questions. You know, what, what can we learn from the, from the baptism of Jesus? And then the other thing, the, 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 uh, the significance of what does it mean to us? His story, his baptism, and our story, what does this mean to us? So uh, let, let's begin in verse 9. Notice what it says. This, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. So we know about Jesus. We know that he's a Nazarene. He was called a Nazarene. We know that he, he grew up there. He's the son of a carpenter. That was just kind of his home base. And, and Nazareth is kind of this insignificant little city. It's maybe, maybe about 500 people, but there's nothing really big or wonderful about Nazareth, if you will. Remember what Nathaniel said? Remember, can anything really good come out of Nazareth? It's kind of a disparaging way to look at the city of Nazareth. You know, a small, uh, insignificant little city. Nothing big about the city of Nazareth, if you will. But what's interesting is about the, the, the word, the, the root word Nazareth. You, you kind of get this idea that there's this branch or shoot. That's what it means. The root word of, of Nazareth has this idea of branch or shoot. So maybe hundreds of years before, after the exile, when people are leaving Babylon and they're coming back to settle in these areas, maybe there was this community of people that got together and said, you know, what we want to do is we want to name this city Nazareth because one day maybe the Messiah will come. Maybe we're going to name it this Nazareth because one day this branch or this shoot from Isaiah the prophet, maybe he'll come and he will visit and he will come out and do ministry out of the area of Nazareth. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, there's a background for this. And notice what it says. Isaiah the prophet, another voice, if you will, from the past says this. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. See, they understood this, that this is a messianic promise, that this branch, this shoot, is going to be in the line of David. It's going to be in the line of Jesse. And so maybe, maybe, just maybe, this Messiah is going to come from Nazareth because of the root, the Jesse, is right here with them. There's this background in this insignificant little town, if you will, of the root or the promise of Jesse coming forth. But I think there's something else here. Notice what it says. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Galilee. Interesting. Remember later in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is, is uh, been arrested and, and Peter's there. And in a defaming kind of way, they're looking at Peter and says, you know what? You are with him. You're a Galilean. In other words, there's something different about you. There's something about your dialect. There's something about the way that you live your life. There's something about the way that you act. It's, it's very, very different. In other words, they didn't think too highly of Galileans. You know, I, I would think of it kind of something maybe like this. You know, it would be like a, a, a gentleman or person with a, a Cubs jersey walking around the city of St. Louis. I mean, when you see that, you kind of go, really? Is that appropriate? Does that fit? Well, that's what happened in Galilee. Can, somebody even said, can the Messiah really come from Galilee? Is he really going to come from Galilee? No way. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. Nothing good comes from the city of Galilee. They had bad reputations. If you, why would anything good, a Messiah, come from there? Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18 says this. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. When you come to the New Testament, when you come to the book of Isaiah, you know that God was called the righteous one. In the New Testament, the book of Acts, it talks about Jesus being the, the righteous one who was crucified. Now, I wonder if we have this, this idea that this gleam of light, if you will, the Messiah is, is bursting onto the scene, and it's just a brief little shimmer of light, if you will. When I get up in the morning, I, I come from um, St. Charles, when I come in here, and a lot of times, depending upon the time I get up in the morning, I'm faced with this, what they call the sunshine slowdown, you know, where I'm driving on Highway 70, and all of a sudden, the, the 
sun begins to come up on the horizon. There's just this little gleam, this little sliver of light. And then as you're driving, you get closer and closer, and then you get over here closer to the church, and all of a sudden it's a lot brighter, and you're driving straight into the sun, if you will. And it's just like this, this bright light is, uh, is out there. And then they call it the, this slowdown, this sunshine slowdown, if you will. And, and I wonder if there's this idea of there's a promise of light. This little gleam of light has come to Nazareth. This little gleam of light has come to the area of Galilee. And in the backdrop of the disparaging words about those two cities, this gleam of light in the Messiah and this person of Jesus has come to begin to just slowly shine on the city, on the people, all the people. In all. So we begin as this little glimmer of light that he would go, he would go to the cross and he would offer himself as a sacrifice for We have that in Scripture. We have kind of an idea of that in Scripture. Again, the voice of Scripture speaks to this, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Notice what is said about the Messiah and how this relates to the righteous one, how this relates to Jesus. It says this, by the way, in, in Isaiah, there, there's kind of going to be a time where, where life is going to be really difficult. They're going to be taken to captive. They're going to be uh, in Babylon for 70 years. Notice the promise here. In the future, he, God, will honor Galilee of the Gentiles, just where he's come, by way of what? By way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have what? They have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, what? A light has dawned. I wonder if this righteous one, the first gleam of dawn, has arrived in the unique person of Jesus. And did anybody get it? The light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ has come. It's just a little bit of a sliver of light. But as Jesus began to go through Galilee, and he began to go through all of these cities and towns and do these wonderful miracles, these powerful things, speak all of these wonderful words, if you will, words from God. You have this idea the light has come and the light has arrived. Light shines in the darkness. That's why Jesus said, I am the light of the world. The light had arrived in the unique person of Jesus. And what does he do? He's in Nazareth. He travels 100 miles and he comes to the Jordan. Knows what he does. He comes to the Jordan to be what? Baptized by John. Baptized by John. Now, maybe some bells and, and whistles are going off in your head because they did for me. If all of these prophecies, these voices in the past, Isaiah 42, Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 9, if all of these voices in the past point to the Messiah Jesus as the one who's going to come and free the people, why in the world, if the Messiah was going to come, why in the world would the uh, Jesus need to come? Why would he need to be baptized? especially this baptize, baptism. What was John baptizing for? It says this, John was baptizing for repentance, for the forgiveness of sin. All of a sudden, the bells are going off on their hands. Wait, 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 ding, 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 wait a minute. Why does Jesus need to be baptized? If Jesus is absolutely sinless, why does he need to come and identify himself with these people and immerse, be immersed in water for baptism? Why in the world would that need to happen? I think we're a lot like John. That's what John responded with. John, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 14, same context. He says, he says this, he says, I have need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. John even didn't understand it. He hesitated. He balked. He says, listen, I don't get it. I'm out preaching a baptism for the forgiveness of sin. People are coming. They're confessing their sin. Why in the world would you come here to be baptized? I don't understand it, and we don't either. We probably don't understand. Until we know and understand what Jesus said in reference to that. Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. Notice what he said. John's Balkan, hesitant to baptize you. Matthew 3, 3, verse 15 says this. Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. This is what it says. Let it be so now. 
it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. That is what Jesus said. I believe the phrase to fulfill all righteousness fits exactly in the context with which John is preaching. What is John preaching? John is preaching a baptism for the forgiveness of sin. And what is happening? All of these people, what do they do? They're coming out and they are confessing their sin. And what do they do? They are repenting. And in one of the other passages, it says about what John was preaching. He was preaching that the wrath of God is coming upon you. In other words, God has this wrath, this disposition towards sin. In other words, you better know and understand that one day you're going to stand before a holy God and you are going to have to give an account for your life. We cannot humanly achieve or understand the very righteousness that Jesus is asking for in this, to fulfill all righteousness. There's no way we could. Only people who are guilty need to repent. Only people who are guilty need to change their life. Only people who are guilty need to do what? They need to confess their sins. And that's what John is doing. He's bringing out this issue that we need to do something with our lives in relation to who Jesus is. The Bible says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So one of the text messages, you know, when, when this happens with our family and with your family, you know, when there's a lot of ambiguity, there's just a lot of things going on. There's text messages, there's all this stuff going on. People are asking questions and it's just a, it's a free-for-all because we don't know what's going on. It's, just, it's a lot of grief, it's a lot of uncertainty. So one of the text messages I got was this, and it brings up a great question. I think it relates here. The text message was this, look, I don't follow religion like, but God should welcome good people, right? That's the text message I got about my brother. Look, I don't follow religion like, but God should welcome good people, right? That's a great question. That's an important question because that's the question that we all have on hearts and minds. When you get to that point, you know, when I face God, what's going to happen when I face God? And this is how I responded. I said, here's the thing. God welcomes bad people who trust him. It's that simple. God welcomes bad people who trust. In other words, what I was trying to communicate to this person was this, that all of us have this disposition, this thing inside of us called sin. And what we do is we become the righteousness of God when we look to Jesus, we put our faith and our trust in Jesus for who he is and what he would do for us. That is what we need to do. Why did the sinless Jesus need to be baptized? Because what he was doing, he was coming to offer himself eventually as a sacrifice for sin. And what he would do is he would come at his baptism. John would actually look at him. John in John chapter 1 verse 20 would look at Jesus when he comes to be baptized and says, Behold the Lamb of God who what? takes away the sin of the world. John begins to identify the unique person of Jesus and what he's come to do. John chapter 1. He said this, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. Let me ask you something. How does the sinless Savior take away the sin of the whole world? Well, he doesn't do this. He doesn't dismiss it. He doesn't forget it. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't just make light of it. It says he takes away the sin of the whole world. How does John recognize in the unique person of Jesus, him being the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the whole world? Because the Lamb of God and the unique person of Jesus is going to come, he's going to live his life, and he's going to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to offer himself as a sacrifice, as a payment. All of our sin, all of our bad stuff, all of our rebellion against God, all of that is going to be placed upon Jesus at the cross. 
and He will bear my sin, and He will bear your sin. The weight of all of our sin will be placed upon Jesus in the cross. And as He goes to the cross, He will bear that sin and be able to remove it from us. There's a theologian by the name of H. A. Ironside, and he was a a, a pastor at Moody in the 20s, 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And and he, he said something that I think relates well to this text. And this is what he said. This is how he relates to this idea of the confession of sin and the rebellion that we are a part of. He said this, We are like paupers who have accumulated so many debts that we cannot pay them. These are our sins. These tremendous claims are made against us, and we cannot possibly meet them. But when Jesus came, he took all those mortgages and notes and agreements we could not meet and endorsed them with his own name, thereby saying he had intended to pay them and he would meet them. That is what baptism signifies and why Jesus said to John the Baptist, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What Jesus does is he comes and he offers himself as a payment as a sacrifice for sin on the cross. Think about Peter. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus is going to ask the question, who do the people say that I am? And Peter's going to say, ding, 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 you're the Messiah. You're the the anointed, you're the Messiah. And immediately right after that, Jesus is going to tell them, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to offer myself as a sacrifice for sin. And Peter says, no, no, you can't go to the cross. After Jesus died, after the resurrection, after Peter is, is welcomed back into the fold, listen to what he writes about the unique death of Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Notice what he writes about Jesus' death. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might what? Die to sin and live for righteousness. Why? For by his wounds we have been healed. Call it the cross. Even on the cross, Jesus said to them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We are in this state, this place of rebellion. We need to confess our sin. We need to repent. We need to do all of those things. No way in and of ourselves can we achieve the very righteousness that God wants and desires for our life. But Jesus can. And he takes the weight of our sin upon himself so that we might become what God would have us to do, what we cannot do in and of ourselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To be sin for us so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. How do I become in him? By putting my faith, my trust in Jesus and who he is, life, death, burial, and resurrection, and will I follow him? You see what Jesus does in his Baptism here, he associates with fallen humanity. He enters into the human experience, the good, the bad, the ugly. He enters into all of that so that he can go to a cross and offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. He comes and associates with me, the guilty person, so that he can go and offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. So when John balks at the idea that Jesus would would be baptized Jesus simply says to him, let it be so for now, for it is proper to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And that means to fulfill all righteousness, Jesus needs to go to the cross and needs to offer himself as a sacrifice, as a payment for sin. In another text, in John chapter 1, verse 31, Jesus is, or John is telling the people of, of why Jesus came. In John chapter 1, verse 31, John tells the people why he came. He says this, 
The reason I came baptizing with water was so that he might be revealed to Israel. Israel, this is your Messiah. This is your Son of God. This is the Chosen One. He is the One. But what He's going to come and do, He's going to be revealed to you people as the One who's going to come and offer Himself as a sacrifice, as a payment for sin on the cross. The cross will fulfill the very righteousness of God that you and I need in order to achieve that relationship with Him. So what does Jesus do? He's baptized. Look at verses 10 and 11. Let me just read verses 10 and 11. That Jesus was coming up out of the water. He saw the heaven being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. I think what we see in these two verses, we, we see two things. We see Jesus in his identity, and we see Jesus in, in his association. Now notice what happens here. As Jesus is coming up out of the water, he's been immersed, he's coming up out of the water. Heaven's being torn open. What does that mean? Heaven's being ripped apart. In other words, 400 silent years, and all of a sudden you have God returning. 400 silent years, God returning to do something wonderful and something powerful. Isaiah chapter 64 says this, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. You would come down, you would tear open the heavens, and something mighty and powerful would come because of who God is and what he's doing. That God himself would come and show up on the scene. And God does. He comes up and he shows up on the scene. And it says the heavens were torn open. In other words, God is here. But I think there's something else about this idea of torn open. But you've got to go to the end of the book. If you, what does it mean for, for heaven to be torn open? If you go to the end of the book, Mark chapter 15, verse 38, we get another inkling of what it means to be torn open and the identity of who Jesus is. This is the crucifixion of Jesus. And listen to these words. At the death of Jesus... Mark chapter 15 says this, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom, a visible manifestation of God doing something. The heavens are open, heaven's torn open, and now at the end, at Jesus' death, the, the, uh, the curtain is being torn open. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was. Son of God. Here is a pagan, a Roman centurion at the cross of Jesus, watching how he died, watching the things that were said, and identifying Jesus as the Son of God, which takes us all the way back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and takes us all the way back to the Baptist. This is the Son of God. And who is proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God? A pagan, somebody outside of Israel, acknowledging who Jesus is and what he would have done. So there's this identity with heaven being open about who Jesus is. But no, there's something else. That God's spirit would rest upon Jesus. If you go back and look in the Old Testament, if you look at the voices in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah chapter 61, the voice of all of those texts, if you will, point to the Messiah being anointed, if you will, by the Spirit of God. In other words, he would come in the very power of God to this earth, and he would display all the works of God, if you will, to the people in Galilee, the people of Jerusalem, all of those things. It says this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. The Spirit will rest upon him. In Isaiah chapter 61, when it talks about the Spirit, it's picked up in the Gospel of Luke where the, the gospel writer Luke looks at Isaiah chapter 61, and, and, and they watch Jesus come in and read from the prophet, 
Isaiah chapter 61, and Jesus sits down and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your sight. The sign that the Messiah would come is that he would be empowered by the Spirit of God. And that's what's happening here. The Spirit of God is descending upon Jesus. And there's an affirmation, if you will, from God himself. Notice what it says again in verse 11. And a voice came from heaven. The divine voice of God speaks of his Son. And what's interesting about verse 11, it's a combination of two texts. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, where it's the coronation of the king. This is my son. It's a coronation. It's a coronation that the the son is going to come and he's going to rule and he's going to reign. And it's also a text from Isaiah chapter 42 about how the king will come and reign. He will come and reign as a servant. So when when God speaks in verse 11, it's this affirmation of Psalm chapter 2 verse 7. It's an affirmation of Isaiah chapter 42 that you are my son. You are the beloved one. You are the one who's going to come. You are the king who's going to reign. They won't get it. They won't accept it. But that's who he is. God is identifying himself. You are my son in whom what? I am well pleased. And why is God well pleased and find delight from Isaiah? Why Why is God finding delight in Jesus because Jesus is going to come and he's going to go to the cross and he's going to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about a body you have prepared for me and I've come to do your will, O Lord. I've come to offer myself, if you will, as a sacrifice for sin. And in verse 11, it's an affirmation, if you will, that this Jesus, this son, the Messiah, is going to be the current king. He's going to be coronated as the king. And God finds great delight in him because of who he is and what he's done. By the way, you see the way that God the Father speaks, the Spirit of God descending, and Jesus walking in obedience. We get a picture of what the triune God coming to visit us at the beginning of Jesus' life, beginning of, uh, sorry, beginning of Jesus' ministry. The first gleam of dawn arrived with Jesus and Nazareth coming from Galilee. He submitted to this outward ritual of, of baptism as an expression of way of identifying himself with fallen humanity so that you and I could identify with him in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Okay, so, so let me just draw some application here. So let me just try and put the two stories. You have his story, Jesus' baptism, and our story. Let, let me just try and put these things together. Let's, let me see if I can converge these. Number one is this. With the exit of John the Baptist, because John the Baptist is leaving the scene. He's going to be off on the scene. He's going to be arrested. He's gone. We have the arrival of Jesus. We have the the introduction of Jesus. We have the public ministry of Jesus beginning. And what's going to happen next? You're going to have this temptation. He's going to go out in the wilderness, and he's going to face the temptation. He's going to face the prince of the power of of this earth, if you will. He's going to fight him. He's going to do battle with him. And then right after that, he's going to come preaching again, repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. We have in the baptism of Jesus this public ministry of him going out in the gospel of him. He's heralding this message of repent for the kingdom of God. I think there's a second correlation between his story and our story, and it's this. It's the promise of this. God made a promise to Jeremiah that one day I'm going to I'm going to work in your heart. I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to change your mind. One day the Spirit of God will come. We need the Spirit of God. One day the Spirit of God will come, and He will come to transform our hearts. He will come to transform our minds. He will come to change us in a mighty and powerful way. And and Jesus comes, and then what? The Spirit of God comes, lands upon Him, and Jesus goes out and does ministry, Isaiah chapter 61, in the Spirit and the power of the Messiah. 
and he does all of these wonderful things, which means you and I, we need the Spirit of God. Acts chapter 1 says the Spirit of God's going to come. He's going to empower you to be my witnesses all over Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, all over. We need the Spirit of God. How do I, you identify yourself as God's child? If the Spirit of God is in you, the Spirit of God convicts us. The Spirit of God seals us. The Spirit of God empowers us. We need the Spirit of God. We are in the age of the Spirit where God's Spirit comes to live inside of us and seals us. And the last thing I want to point out between his story and our story is this. This is personal. This is personal. We have an incredibly, and I don't even do it justice, we have an incredibly high Christology of who Jesus is. All of these voices in the past from Isaiah to Malachi to the message of the prophets to all of these wonderful pointers, if you will, in the Old Testament about who Jesus is and what he would come to do. That he is the king proclaimed in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Is he the king of your life? And are you following him as the king of your life? He's on the throne of your life, and you're allowing him to make the decisions of your life. Are you following him? That's the, that, that, that's the challenge of the, the story here in the Gospel of Mark is, yeah, I see Jesus. I see where he's going, but am I going to follow him or not? He says, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That's, that's the story. And the last thing is this. It's the idea of baptism. Baptism. What does Christian baptism do? Christian baptism, according to Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, points us to Jesus in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Remember, we talked about fulfilling the very righteousness of God. Notice what Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Man, my eyes are getting... Or do you not know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with Jesus through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. What baptism does for you and I, it reminds us in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and what he's come to do for us for himself as that sacrifice for sin on the cross. So when I'm over here and I'm in this baptismal and I'm sharing my story, and maybe I'm going public with my story for the very first time, I'm reminding ourselves that Jesus came to fulfill this righteousness because I'm identifying myself with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. As as I go under the water, I'm united with him in his death. And as I come out of the water, reminded of being resurrected so that I can live. And my point of bringing this up is, maybe you're sitting there, you've never been baptized. Well, we take our cue from who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Jesus begins his public ministry. He's immersed in the water, something radically different at that particular point. And it was a pointer to what was happening in this message from John the Baptist and what ultimately Jesus would come to do. If you have not been baptized, I would just ask you to just think about it. Consider it. Consider where your life is at in relationship. And if you're not following Jesus, man, today is a great day, a great day to get on train with Jesus. So... um, my dad went to uh, my brother's house. He drove by, and he took a picture of my brother's house. It's in Ritzville, Washington. It's a little dinky little. And my, and my dad, you got to understand, we're, we're working through this a little humorous. My dad drove by, and he, and he said, uh, I, I went up to the door, but nobody was home. We got it. And I, and I chimed in. I said, no, he's home. He's at his real home. He's at the home that Jesus prepared for him before the very foundation of the world, John chapter 14. 
And I can say that not on my authority, but I can say that on the authority of who Jesus is based upon the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Listen, I don't know where your faith is at, and I don't know what you're going through in life, but who Jesus is and what he's done for us, it is an anchor for our souls. Man, I don't know what you're going through today, but don't run from him. Don't run from him, run to him. He invites us to follow. He lovingly, he lovingly invites us to follow him because of who he is and what he's. Isn't that awesome stuff? Okay, I realize I got a little wanky, but that's okay. Father, thank you for your word. Father, I thank you that your word is an anchor to my very soul. It's an anchor to all of our souls. Father, I thank you for the promises of Jesus. I thank you that he came to this earth to fulfill all righteousness by going to the cross. And I thank you that you look at us and we are declared righteous, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what you have done for us, that we bear the very righteousness of Christ because we are in you. And I thank you for that. Father, I pray that you would speak to our minds and our hearts and remind us of your goodness and grace to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.